Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of this show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. (laughs) I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. Hey, everyone. I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, Amy P, or AP. And I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. (laughs) We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the activity activity continues. Welcome to Volsteadland. I'm Amy, and this is Heather. Hi, everyone. We're so glad you're here. Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. If you've not listened to the previous episode, The Bumbling Crew, Parts 1 and 2, or any of those before it, you'll probably want to check them out as there is some stuff there that you'll need to know to get the most out of this episode. So sit back grab a drink of choice and join us for some talk about extortion, bribery, bootlegging, and murder. Amy, do you want to tell the people at home what we're drinking tonight? Sure. We are drinking the bootleg cocktail. I found it on a food blog that I've been following for years called Cookie and Kate. She says that she first discovered it here in Minneapolis at Brit's Pub. And didn't you work at Brit's Pub? I did. I worked briefly at Brit's Pub, and I also enjoyed the bootleg while I was there. Cool. I will link to her blog post in our show notes. Kate says, 
the Boule Hills from Minneapolis. It's a refreshing cocktail made with naturally sweetened lemon limeade blended with mint plus gin, vodka, or bourbon and club soda. Today we're using gin in ours. Yes, uh, we're mm-hmm. using gin. I did make one for Greg, but I put bourbon in his because gin makes men mean. It also said that you can adjust the amount of sweetener and mint to suit your preferences and that you can omit the liquor for a delightful minty lemonade. (laughs) But we don't do that here. Nope. We're all about the booze. (laughs) That's right. So you make the bootleg mix first, which is squeezed lemon, squeezed lime and um, crushed mint. And it's supposed to be done in a blender, but my blender took a nosedive off the refrigerator, bonked me on the head and then crashed to the floor and broke in a million pieces. (laughs) So I used my immersion blender. I want to give a shout out to Amber Lynn 17 for the five star review on Apple. She said, love this. This is a great podcast. So interesting. Also want to shout out to Heather's and my friend Rachel, who made a generous donation uh, to the podcast through Red Circle. That's our host. Rachel is my high school bestie. So we've known each other for approximately 100 years. And Heather met her over the pandemic when we started doing happy hour Zooms twice a week. We now do them about once a week. Um, sometimes sometimes we even skip those, but we're still doing them. And um, the last time Rachel was in town, I think it was this summer. Earlier summer. Yep. So she and Heather met for the first time in real life, and it was a glorious event. It was. So um, we did get another d- donation too, but it was anonymous. Well, Rachel's was too, but I suspected it was her because right after the donation came in, she texted me <laughs> and said she'd been listening. And I said, oh, hey, by any chance, did you leave a donation? And that's how I knew it was her. But the other donation, I don't know who that is. So if it's you and you're listening, thank you. We appreciate it. And I also want to tell you about a podcast that I found via Instagram. It's called Blood and Barrels, and it's a husband and wife team, Mike and Amy, who drink beer and talk murder. And each episode, um, they choose a beer that is from the region where their crime took place. And they're knowledgeable and pretty funny, too, especially when the beer is flowing. I'll post a link in the show notes. I'm really excited to check that out. (laughs) Yeah, they're really funny. They're really cool. So, last time on Volstead Land, we talked about the trial of Kid Can for the murder of Walter Liggett. In a nutshell, Walter Liggett, a newspaper editor and writer, was gunned down in the alley behind his apartment when he stepped out of his car after returning home. His wife, Edith, was sure that the machine gun killer was Kid Can. A few other people corroborated this, but just as many, or more, testified that it couldn't have been him because he was in a million other places at the time. It seems that everyone and their dog knew that Kid Can would be acquitted. Is it because he's innocent? Is it because the state really messed up the investigation or were restricted and the trial? Is it because he's gotten away with everything up until this point? Is it because he is friends with the governor and much of the police department? Or is it something more sinister? It's all of the above. All of the above. So this is um, this is the portion of the uh, show where we do the corrections corner. I don't know if that's officially the name for it, but um, these are just the things that are like updates from what we talked about the last time we were together. So we were talking about the possibility of a second shooter 
And we were trying to remember the name of the person who took the home video in the JFK assassination, and neither of us could remember it. And as I'm sure you all know now, uh, especially if you've watched the video version of the episode, it's Zabruder. Zabruder. Sounds like there's a B in there, but it's not. Zabruder. Um, from Wikipedia, the Zabruder film is a silent eight millimeter color motion picture sequence shot by Abraham Zabruder with a Bell and Howell homemade home <laughs> homemade movie camera. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was really inventive. <clears throat> Um, with a Bell and Howell home movie camera. As United States President John F. Kennedy's motorcade passed through the Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963. Unexpectedly, it ended up capturing the president's assassination. And I had mentioned a movie um, about Zepruder, um, and it's called Parkland. Depending on your location, you can watch it on Amazon or YouTube, and we'll put the links in the show notes. Um, it stars Paul Giamatti as um, Zapruder, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I love him. I still haven't seen it yet. I meant to watch it after we talked about it before, but I've been a little busy. Mm -hmm. And you have been in Greece. Yes, I have been. Well, I had a wonderful um, holiday in Greece celebrating a friend's 50th birthday, and um, I didn't want to come home, and real life sucks, and Greece is fabulous. The food was wonderful. The wine was flowing. The beaches were beautiful. And here we are back in Minneapolis. I don't know if you noticed, I posted a picture of you in your beautiful dress. Yes. <laughs> it looked great. It looked like so much fun. Okay. Another thing is, um, I wasn't sure if Wally, Walter's son, had heard the shots from the alley when his dad was murdered, but um, I did finally finish Marta Leggett Woodbury's book. And she says that he did hear the shots. And in fact, he was listening to the radio at the time. And so he remembers the exact moment when he heard the shots because of what was being played on the radio. You know how when you hear things at the same time and they kind of tie themselves together in your mind yep. forever? Mm -hmm. So he knew exactly what was being said on the radio when he heard the shots. So that's part of how they were able to pin down the exact time of the murder. And this is the first time that a radio broadcast had been used to determine the time of a murder. So it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Also, I had mentioned that I thought it was the judge at the trial who noted that Kid Kian was in three different places at noon and two other at another time of the day or whatever. Just to clear that up, it wasn't the judge. It was the sheriff. Okay, so for this episode, we will cover more of the after trial stuff, including some theories, an extortion plot bribery, and an attempted murder. So, remember when Kid Gan was acquitted of the murder, Edith immediately accused the police of corruption when she said, murder of an enemy of Floyd B. Olson is hardly a crime in Minneapolis. Beyond lying wholeheartedly for their lifelong associate, Blumenfeld, the Minneapolis police force has done nothing. Well, just hours after the acquittal, she was stepping off a curb just outside the office of the Midwest American when a speeding car swerved toward her. Oh. Luckily, it missed. 
She said she was threatened several times after she first named Kid Can as the killer. A few weeks later, she sold the Midwest American and the Minneapolis newspapers reported that she moved to a family farm in Wisconsin. But I think that was just a cover for her. Oh. Um, they may have stopped there, but they actually moved to New York City, according to her daughter's book. But she was driven out of town. Yeah. Well, she said... I'm leaving Minneapolis because I fear for my life and for my children. Already an attempt has been made to kill me. Mm -hmm. She ended up writing for a few newspapers and eventually wrote it, wrote two detective stories. One was about two editors who were killed and it ran in a paper called crime detective. It was banned in Minneapolis of by course. Ed Goff, the County attorney at the time. I really wish I could get my hands on that. So if anybody out there knows where to find a copy of the magazine Crime Detective from about 1936 to 1940 that has that story in it, let us know. Okay, so on to some theories. Another theory in the murder is that Edith believed that a man named Charles Ward probably bankrolled the murder. He was a millionaire and former convict who inherited a publishing firm called Brown and Bigelow after one of the founders, Herbert H. Bigelow, drowned. Ward is a personal friend of our pal Floyd B. Olson. A few others back this theory, including Annette Fawcett. You remember her as the woman who lured Walter Liggett to that hotel room in October of 1935 when he was beat up by Kid Can and his cronies. I think we should do a deep dive into this one, both the theory and the drowning. Uh, there's also a bit of scandal associated here. Ooh, so um, the firm of Brown and Bigelow are still around and they're in St. Paul. Really? Hmm. Another theory is that one of Izzy's brothers, not sure if it's Jacob or Harry, actually looked very much like him. So it's speculated that the brother could have either been the shooter or at the barbershop or at any of the other million places that can was seen uh, or people said they saw him in several different places all at once. Uh, as you know, if you heard the last episode, there was a grand jury investigation going on in the room just next door to the murder trial in the courthouse. They were doing a study of city council liquor license application procedures. And they realized that a lot of liquor dealers who had permits should not have been given them because they had prior bootlegging convictions. That was the deal. Uh, you were not supposed to have that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. If you disobeyed the law at that time, or if you got caught, you weren't supposed to be able to have liquor as your career. So uh, they had lied on their applications about it, and nobody double-checked, and they were famously convicted, too. So uh, they ended up indicting 18 liquor dealers, and the outcome of the grand jury was they said there is evidence of widespread evil. Also a good name for an episode. Widespread evil. <laughs> Quote, the citizens of Minneapolis are facing one of the most serious and pressing problems of all time. And they suggested that the city council should create a new bureau to handle only applications and licenses for liquor. And there were 55 cases where people had been given licenses and were later convicted of offenses against existing ordinances. So the grand jury suggested that those convicted should forfeit their bonds. And each of these had a bond of $3,000. So that would have brought in about one hundred and fifty to $250,000 to the city. 
Because as you know, even if you, when you pay your bond, if you're, even if you're found guilty, you get that back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is surprising to me. Strange. Yeah. But I guess, I don't know. The bond is just to be sure you don't skip town. So if you don't skip town. The superintendent who was in charge of licenses since 1930 was indicted on two counts of willful neglect of his official duty. When it came time to try those indicted, witnesses either refused to testify or had lapses in memory. (laughs) The jury foreman was ousted and a new jury foreman was put in place. And this shit show seemed to drag out for at least a year. Uh, But I can find no record of any conviction. I kept searching the names and filtering the next year and then the next year and oh, the next year. Wow. Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge, and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. Free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. You get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the Nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They are also vegan and ethically sourced. So, whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own, or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us. ThreeSpiritDrinks.com and use the promo code The Activity Continues for 15% off your entire order. Cheers! That one that was our best cheer. one yet. Yeah, and finally nothing happened because the witnesses just decided they weren't going to testify. I didn't know that you could just refuse if you were subpoenaed, but maybe you could back then. So it was a big old waste of time since the city refused to cooperate with the grand jury. And I think it's worth noting that the grand jury caused such a stink during this investigation. They were like going on the radio and being very public about their findings that the mayor at that time, his name was Thomas Latimer. 
complained about them publicly, saying that they were searching for problems that didn't exist and could only come up with silly indictments, which would be impossible to convict. So instead of letting them meet weekly, as they had been, they decided to only call them on special occasions. So this is a quote from Mayor Latimer. The legislature has taken away most of the duties of a grand jury and placed them in the hands of the county attorney through the filing of information so that about all the crimes left for the grand jury to consider are murders and bank robberies. This struck me as like one of those things like, if we stop testing for coronavirus, we won't have so many cases. Right. You know, that's what it (laughs) sounds like to me. A side note. Mayor Thomas E. Latimer is not related to George Latimer, who was the St. Paul mayor in the 70s and 80s. I will also mention we didn't really talk about this, but Floyd Olson had passed away by this time. He had stomach cancer near the end of the Liggett trial. It wasn't well known. Um, People just knew he was sick. Um, But maybe we'll deep dive into him sometime, too. Okay, so on to the murder trial jury. One of my sources gave me an original clipping from a 1936 article in the Minneapolis Star showing a photo of the jury in the murder trial of Kid Can. I'll post that too. And said to me, look how they printed the jurors' uh, photos and names and addresses in the paper so that anyone could find them and bribe them. And that's exactly what happened here. That's crazy. (laughs) I know. So the grand jury asked for an investigation into the jury being bribed because they had heard reports of attempted intimidation. These threats came by phone and the callers did not reveal their identity. They called people they thought might be selected for the jury. So not after the jury was selected and they aren't sure if those who received calls actually were selected for the jury. Oh, wow. Okay. Or so that's the official line. Yeah. They also reject Can's alibis in order to charge his alibi witnesses with perjury. Uh, in Marta Liggett's book, she says that an anonymous caller told her that Dave Garfinkel, the barbershop owner, that was his alibi, um, had been given a boat in return for his testimony. <laughs> but none of this was mentioned at the grand jury's final notes. My source, who had a family member who apparently testified as an alibi witness for Can, told me that later after the trial, uh, Kid Can asked the guy what he wanted in return for his testimony, and he offered him a pretty big Minnesota business that was in line with this man's career. Um, I don't want to say what it is because I don't want to give away the source, but it's a big business in Minneapolis. It still is. Oh, interesting. Yeah, even today. I'll tell you later. Okay, good. So the general consensus of this time was that it was fixed. Now, I don't know if this means that Kid Can really murdered Walter Liggett or not. I mean, at this point, I can't tell if Kid Can was necessarily the don of the whole outfit. I kind of think that was Meyer Schulberg, but I'm not sure. They don't exactly print that in the paper, so I couldn't find out. So if anybody knows, hit me up. (laughs) Let me know. Um, He certainly wasn't a low rank guy. We do know that he was top four in the liquor syndicate, which we will get to in a little bit. But it sure would be a bad look for the whole syndicate if Kid Can was convicted. So it would 
behoove them to <laughs> let him go. I do believe that several parties went to great lengths to make sure that he was not convicted. Kid Can knew he'd be acquitted. The Minneapolis paper reported that as the judge was beginning to read the verdict, he jumped up before the judge even finished reading it and ran to thank them. His lawyer had to grab him, pull him, make him sit down. But his pals in the courtroom also erupted and started cheering. And the judge had to restore order, calm, before he could finish reading the verdict. <sighs> yeah. His lawyer, McMeekin, tears running down his face, <laughs> also ran over to thank the jury. And uh, my guess is these were tears of relief, because I can't imagine what would have been in store for him had Can been convicted. Edith was not present when the verdict was read, and neither were the prosecuting attorneys. So I feel like they all knew what the outcome would be. As for the state, uh, they said that it, this was not a hired hit. Attorney Pike, now remember, Pike is the one who is 71 years old and doesn't have any experience in criminal law, according to the papers. Right. He said, after all, Liggett is dead and someone killed him with a machine gun. Hired killers don't work like that. They don't ride where persons can see them and run into such possibilities of identification. The hired killer has a little regard for his own skin. This wasn't the work of a hired assassin. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, but I like this line. We have here the work of a messenger from the dark background of the lawless life of the city, riding with death, scoffing at all chance of prosecution, and then fleeing back to its castle of refuge, a spurious alibi. <laughs> I already told you about how Meyer Schulberg said that around Christmas, some men came to him offering to fix the trial if he gave them $10,000. I'm assuming that he didn't take them up on it, or I don't think he would have mentioned it to the police. That would seem like a bad move. Um, Edith claims to know about two offers, one to friends of Can for $5,000 to produce testimony that Edith did not see Can in the killer car. Another one for 10000 that had been made to friends of Can to, quote, see to it that neither she nor Wesley Anders would testify for the state. Hmm. But of course they did. They both testified, but... Didn't do much good. Yeah, didn't do much good. She suspected the attorney's investigator was behind it. That person, who was never named in the paper, approached her the day of Walter's funeral with a packet of photographs and suggested that she might identify the driver from them. She put the photos in her purse without looking at them and apparently <laughs> forgot about them until six days later when the man came to her home. She returned the photos to him, and I have no idea if she looked at them or not. I'd be really curious to see who was in there. Um, there was another report that this same man approached her the night of the murder and talked to her alone. But I don't see how that's possible. I don't think she was ever alone. And there were people swarming her the whole time. Right. But this person said that she asked him to get her a picture of Kid Can so that she would know what he looked like. When Can's lawyer, McMeekin, heard of this, he attempted to get in touch with the man by issuing a subpoena, but then later said he became convinced that there was nothing to this story, and so he didn't call him as a witness. The same man had apparently gone to jail the night of the murder and offered a jailer $500 to let him talk to Can. Can actually corroborated this. 
<laughs> he didn't talk to him, though. The man is only called the attorney's investigator. I assume that it's the defense investigator, since this man seems to want to cover for Can. But McMeekin, Can's lawyer, seems as flummoxed as anyone else. So I'm not really sure who it is. Um, but there's a funny little three-act play in the newspaper printed called Plenty of Fix that plays out the exchange between Meyer Schulberg and the men who visited him and some other characters. But I don't know where they got the information. I don't know who wrote it. They didn't have bylines back then. But again, it names, quote, attorney's investigator, saying it's someone who's charged with subordination of perjury at this time. So I searched the papers for that term and found a man named Russell Manning, who was charged with subordination of perjury. So I'm going to guess that's him. It was right around that same time. I didn't have time to do a deep dive on him, but maybe, maybe that should go on the list. Okay, let's talk extortion. Shortly after the trial ended, Meyer Schulberg received a letter from someone who called himself the Lone Wolf. He would later be identified as Fritz Danielson, a carpenter who lived in Minneapolis up until a few weeks before the letter was sent. He claimed that he, along with three friends, had witnessed the murder. He asked Schulberg for $5,000 to keep quiet, and he claimed that he wanted to go to the police with what he knew, but he was told to get out of town and stay out. He also sent a letter to Kid Can, but they never disclosed what the amount was he wanted from him, only that he would make his life more difficult. Danielson was arrested, and the papers reported that he denied writing the letters, and then Schulberg denied having ever received them, even though one of the letters was printed in the paper a few weeks before. Um, after months of waiting for the grand jury, then the actual hearing, Danielson finally admitted to sending the letters, and he was sentenced to two years, but it was a suspended sentence, and he ended up being just being on parole for five years. Uh, the letter was printed in the paper, so I have it. I'll, I'll read it. It was uh, written in pencil. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. Mr. Meyer Schulberg, you do not know me, nor do I know you, but I have heard and know a lot about you and your mob, you cheap bootlegger. I see by the papers that they have your pet killer in a jam. What I have to say is not personal, but strictly a business matter. I have been in town three weeks, and I'm hard put for cash. Now I have in my possession certain papers and documents that would make it very embarrassing and may even implicate you in certain matters if they should accidentally fall into the hands of the Attorney General. In plain, simple English, I want five grand, and I want it inside of two weeks, or the Attorney General's office will receive some startling information. Now, if you think I am bluffing, I dare you to try and call it and see where you wind up. You can contact me by advertising an ad in the personals of the Minneapolis Tribune Wednesday, January 15th, stating as follows, quote, L.W., please advise to what action I am ready to take steps. M. Smith. If you are smart, you will do business with me. The Lone Wolf. P.S. How I love to shake down rats of your type, and I'll dare you to give me the same dose you gave Liggett. Wow. And so this is a way that corrupt people communicated with each other because in the Urschel kidnapping, they put right. to get 
to get the ransom. That's so right. Yeah. It seems to be a trend in 1930s. Yeah. Well, I mean, even when I was young, I remember people putting things in the personals yeah. in the one app to like talk to each other. And do you remember there was, how oh, was it city pages or one of those local rags that had, I shouldn't say rags. It was good paper um, that had a personal section where it'd be like you at the Byerleys on 12th right. missed connections. connections. Yep. Yes. And I always thought there's some shady shit going on in mm-hmm. there. too. It wasn't all missed romance. Yeah. Not much was said again about the murder of Walter Liggett, and I don't believe anyone was actually even trying to solve the crime. Certainly, it remains unsolved today. Thanks again for giving us your time. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like some extras, visit us over on Patreon. You can follow us without even subscribing, and it's free. Or you can support us there too if you wish for even more extras. I recently added a $1 tier for those who want to support us for less than the price of a good martini for a whole year. As always, I'm looking for more personal stories from people who are descendants of folks who knew these characters. So please email me or leave a message. Details in the show notes slash description. I am planning on doing a full episode on just all the stories I've gathered from people about Kid Can. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and visit us on all our social media platforms for extra content. Also, if you're a fan, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, even if you don't listen on Apple. It really helps us out. All right. Good night, friends. Good night. Let's have another drink. <laughs> yep, I better finish mine. All right. Volstedland is produced by me, Amy, at Whimsical Productions and is part of the Collected Sounds Network. Thanks for listening. Okie doke.